Well, um, I'm going to have you begin by turning to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We will uh, get to Ecclesiastes 5, so you certainly can um, mark that. But I'm going to begin today in Matthew 6, just so you can get ready. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks about two types of treasures, earthly treasures and, and heavenly treasures. In fact, this passage, will we'll look at this in depth at the marriage seminar on Saturday. So if you're planning on coming on that to that, please do tell myself or Jody, and we'll make sure we have enough resources for everybody. But we'll, we'll really dig into Matthew 6 then. But today, I just want to take you to a small section. It's Matthew chapter 6, looking at verses 19 to 21. These are the words of, of Jesus. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus has given us a warning in this passage. His warning is clear. The earthly treasures have a tendency to capture our hearts. That's what he's referring to there. When you lay up treasures for yourselves, right, your heart will be there. So the question is, where is your, where is your treasure? There is um, an event happening in Cardiff this week um, on Friday, or I think it's Thursday, whatever the 13th is. Maybe that's Thursday. It's called the Hoarding UK event. The Hoarding UK event. And I looked this up. This website has information about hoarding because at this point, we've somewhat labeled hoarding as a mental illness. And it's so for people who are suffering with that or people who want to know how to help those who are suffering with that, the, the desire to collect things, to hoard possessions. And I looked up the web's website, and a man was discussing the impact his, his wife's hoarding had on his life. And this is what he said. I buried my wife yesterday after 50 years of marriage. Her dying words were not, I love you. They were don't touch my stuff. <laughs> now, on one sense, you do laugh. But he went on to say, what could I have done that might have made things different? Because, see, that was the reality for him. His wife died in such a state that what she was concerned for, what's going to happen to my stuff? Possessions. And what Jesus warns is, if you have a treasure, you better make sure it's in the right place because your heart's going to be there too. And her heart was in the earthly possessions. Earthly uh, possessions have a way of possessing us. But there's a greater issue. If our hearts are attached to earthly treasures, then he says it's impossible, impossible to serve God. In verse 24, he goes on. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and riches, wealth. You can't do it. The pursuit of earthly treasures is not a trait of the believer. It is a trait of the unbeliever. And that's really how Jesus concludes, if you look at verse 32 of this passage. passage. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. You see that? 
That's what the Gentiles do. They go after all those things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. For us, for the non-Gentile, if you like, for the believer, we need to seek God's kingdom first. He'll give us all the things we need. But if you're seeking the kingdom of self and the treasures of this world, you won't be able to serve God. Now, the question is this. Why does Jesus teach about our possessions? Material possessions are one of the primary uh, barriers between God and man. Sin is the primary barrier between God and man. But even once sin has been removed, other barriers still remain, don't they? Riches, earthly possessions, are still a barrier, and they are powerful, and they can influence us. They can influence us away from Christ. The illustration that you will know well is from the parable of the sower. In fact, it's just a few chapters later in Matthew 13. If you're still there, you can look at it, but I'll have the verse up there. But you might remember in the the parable, it's a parable of the sower who is sowing uh, seeds. The seeds represent the word of God, and he is sowing it into different soils, which represent the hearts, different hearts of, of different people, right? And so you have the soil uh, that it falls on that's maybe a stony, a stony place, or you have the uh, place that it's sort of on the wayside, and you have the thorns, and you have these different soils, and you have the good ground, right? And it's the thorns. It's the, one, the seed that falls among the thorns I want to highlight. In verse 22 of Matthew 13, Jesus explains what it means. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And he becomes unfruitful. Do you see that? The thorns. It's the deceitfulness of riches. We are prone to be deceived. We're prone to be deceived by riches, by the possessions, by our wealth, just as, as much as anybody else. God gave this warning to the Jews, to Israel. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is really important. Turn to Deuteronomy 8. You'll want to see this. This is, this is remember, Deuteronomy is when the children of Israel are, are, are about to go into the promised land because the first generation died in the wilderness. They did not inherit the land. So these are the children. And, and, and Moses is reminding them of all these things. God has given these words to Moses to share to the children of Israel, and it's regarding the possessions and the fruitfulness of this land that they're going to go to. And there's a warning in there. And here it is in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verse 6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you've eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. All that sounds great, right? This is going to be the perfect place. And when you enjoy it, just make sure you bless the Lord because he's given it to you. But then comes the warning in verse 11. Beware, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, 
and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. What a warning. I'm going to give you something really, really good, but I want to warn you, Israel, it's going to have a tendency to capture your heart, and you're going to be tempted to forget me. You're going to forget the one who gave it to you, that I gave it to you. Down the road, maybe not the first ones, down the road, other generations will be like, wow, look what we have done for ourselves. Aren't we great? And so he warns them, if you do that, you start going away from me because you forget me, and then you're going to die. That will lead to death. What a warning we have. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it's not a proverb of Solomon, but of a guy named Agur, says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. You see what he says there? Just give me enough, right? Just give me enough. Don't give me so much, Lord, that I just forget who you are. But also don't give me so little that I'm tempted to to steal. You know, I just want to be content. Give me just uh, enough. Why do I set all this up? Well, as we look at this section of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to address the the oppressive nature of possessions. In fact, that's what I've titled it, the oppression of possessions. Like I said, they have a tendency to uh, possess us. And even those who have the riches end up being oppressed by the very things they sought to possess. And it's a tragedy. But this is the wisest man who ever lived, and what he has to say about this rings true today. We're going to read chapter 5, verse 8, all the way to the end of chapter 6. So look at this with me, verse 8, Deuteronomy chapter, or sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness. 
and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here is what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all his desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years, twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place? All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the warning we've seen already in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, against the danger of, of possessions and what they can do to us. Lord, help us to have ears to hear today what Solomon says about those things. Lord, it's true. We're human. We are prone to desire things. And we just pray, Lord, that those things would not possess us. So just show us, Lord, in your word, how we might avoid these things. What kind of heart toward possessions should we have? Lord, we want to glorify you with those things. So guide us into truth today for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's a lengthy section, but some of this will go kind of quickly. But one of the key words I want to point out before we really jump into this too much is a word. It's already appeared four times in Ecclesiastes, but I'm highlighting it today because it appears six times just in these verses. What is that word? It is the word eats. <laughs> you probably saw it all through there, eats. It is achel, achel, and it, it means eat, but also the idea is to consume, to consume. Um, we are consumers, and advertisers advertise to consumers. They want you to consume their product. What's that mean? To buy their product, right? They want you to get their thing into their, in your home, right? That's the idea. I was just talking with the kids. We go through, I think I told you before, we're going through this uh, introduction to logic book. And one of them is about different propaganda techniques. One of them that we learned this week is called transfer. The propaganda technique of transfer you see in commercials and adverts all the time. It is trying to get you to transfer the feelings you have toward that thing to their product. They'll show you a, a beautiful woman or a, a muscle-clad man and say, get the gut you know, buster machine, right? And you are transferring your thoughts and hopes of wanting muscles and all these things and beauty into that machine. Or vehicles are a big one, right? 
these vehicles that are going through rivers and through lakes and, I don't know, underwater and all bridge, you know, they're like crazy, the commercials with vehicles today on top of mountains. And you go, well, I'm adventurous. I need a Chevy Tahoe, right? I need that vehicle. You're transferring your desire for adventure to the vehicle, right? Why do they go to those techniques and extremes? Because they want you to consume. They want to get you to buy their stuff. And this is the idea here. As we see this word eat all through the passage, the idea is the consumer, the one who's buying. He's not just talking about food, although that can be part of it. He's just talking about what we consume. Last week, we discussed um, the proper approach to God. There was a lot of emphasis on the danger of what comes out of our mouths, wasn't there? Just a ton of that in those passages there. Don't be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Let your words be few. A fool's voice is known by as many words. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. All those things are about what can come out. And now we're kind of looking at the dangers might be inherited in what we're consuming, you know, what's coming in. And so we begin with here an introduction look at oppression. Oppression exists, and it's the oppression of the poor that is the prevalent thing. That's what he's starting with. He's like, we can look at the poor, and we can see in a general way that they're oppressed. And it's usually the rich that are oppressing them. And maybe sometimes not even intentionally, but it happens because they're looking out for themselves. It's the oppression of the poor. Look at verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over a high official and higher officials are, are over them. He's beginning by saying you're going to see oppression of the poor and it shouldn't be something that surprises you. You shouldn't marvel at it. The rich oppress the poor. It's systemic. The governments of this world and their entire system is corrupt. It's created with successive tiers of authority. And they all use their power and their authority and their prestige uh, and then their influence to oppress the others, right? That are below them. Or just to look out for their interests, right? I got my back and you got mine, right? But we're not going to worry about those that are on the bottom rung. Then that's just how the system of our world works. It's not right. It's not good. But Solomon says that exists. The poor are oppressed. And you can have higher officials over higher officials. There's always a bigger fish, isn't there? And ultimately, the biggest fish. You have the king. Look at verse 9. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. I do want to begin by, by looking at that word profit again. I want to remind you that's one of the words we looked at at the very beginning of the study. In chapter 1, right away, we saw what, what is it, profit? Profit is that word, uh, yathron, and it means a gain or advantage or some value that is left over. It's all through this. I'm pointing it out again because there's going to be another word translated as profit. It's actually a different word. So I'm highlighting it for you so you know these two words are going to be different because they have a different meaning. This one, yathron, is the one we've seen most, most often. What's the value left over? What's the gain that we, we have here, right? The gain of the land is for all right? The produce of the land. But the king is even served from the field. What's the idea here? <laughs> this is really excellent. The idea comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you'd like to turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 8. You might remember this. Israel is tired of having God as their king. And Israel decides, we know what? We want a man to be a king. You remember that? And they go to Samuel and they say, get us, you know, get us a king. And Samuel's upset. He goes to God and says, your people, they don't want you ruling over. They want a king. He says, oh, yeah, give him a king. But make sure you tell them, make sure you tell them what that king is going to do. All right? And that's what I want to read you today because I think that's the idea Solomon is getting at. First Samuel chapter 8. 
beginning in verse 10. Here's the words Samuel tells them, and these words are coming from God. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he'll take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. (laughs) <laughs> just make sure you tell him, you know, this is what he's going to do. And then when you cry out, I won't be listening. I won't be listening. Isn't it crazy? They heard all that and they still chose a king. That's an amazing list. He's going to take everything. And that's the idea here, right? The, the land is for all, but even the king is served from the field. He's going to take everything from the land and give it to those that are in his kingdom, that he are his attendants and his officers and his servants and his officials. He'll make sure they are well, well cared for, but he's really going to neglect the poor. And the question is why? Why does it have to be that way? So Solomon begins by saying, this is what we see. This is just a fact of life, but why? And so the rest of this passage is going to look into the why. He's going to look at the root causes, which is the love of money. It's the love of wealth. The idea is this. If poverty has its problems, and it it does, he's going to point this out. Wealth is not necessarily the answer. Many people in that position say, gosh, I'm just the oppressed poor, but if, if I could get to that place, right, all my problems will be over. But Solomon writes this to say, actually... I want you to see there's, there's quite a few problems that come with being rich. It may not be the answer is what I'm saying. Because that's naturally where we turn, knowing like, oh, money would just solve everything, right? I definitely remember those times when I really struggled. I didn't, you know, we had enough money to buy a McDonald's Happy Meal in New York. My wife and I split it. We shared it. Like half a cheeseburger for you, half a cheeseburger for me. And we just had to make that last, right? And you just start thinking like, if I just had a little bit more money, all my problems would be over. Well, Solomon writes to say that's not necessarily the case. The, the, the answer is not in possessions and, and wealth, not necessarily. And so this section is, is giving us the misgivings of the rich, the misgivings of the rich. Look at verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. So a couple subpoints among this section, right? The misgivings of the rich, you're poor, you want to be rich, uh, you think it's going to solve everything. But here's one of the things, the more they have, the more they want. The more they have, the more they want. So, so, right? You've been in that position. You finally got what you wanted and were you satisfied? Well, no, you wanted more, right? That was good, Lord. Thank you for providing that. I still would like this. I want a little bit more. If you have silver or money, you just want more silver. You want more money. In fact, the word abundance there uh, in that verse, uh, nor he who loves abundance with increase, is the word hamon, hamon. And it does mean a great number in wealth. You're talking about, I want more wealth. So it's not just that, you know, I love silver and I want more silver, but even just the idea of increasing, the idea of increasing. There's no cap to it. 
We don't go, if I just make it to there, I'll, 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 done. I'll be done. I won't want more. No, no. With increase, you want more. With abundance, you want more because it's vanity. It just never ends. It keeps going on and on and on. Your profit never fulfills those who pursue it, is the idea. Never. So the more they have, the more they want. Secondly, the more they have, the more they need. The more you have, the more you need. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them (laughs) or who consume them, right? So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? Here's the idea here. Here's the first time we see that word eats again, okay? So that's the idea. Who consume them with with more wealth comes more people to consume that wealth, right? You you win the lotto, you're going to all of a sudden have that long-lost uncle showing up at your door, right? All of a sudden, you have beneficiaries you didn't ever even knew you had, right? Like, yeah, I'm your lost long cousin. And, and you know, you got to get like a tenth of this person, right? You just have people coming out of the woodwork. You have taxation, right? You have greater responsibilities. And all of a sudden, you realize, what well, I just need more now because I have to have more. I, I need more. People are consuming everything I have. In fact, here's the second word of profit. So what profit have the owners? This is not that word yithron. This is the word kishron. It's very close. But it's kishron, and it means success or skill. It's been translated twice already in Ecclesiastes as skill in chapter 2, verse 21, and in chapter 4, verse 4. So here's the idea. The only success or benefit, you could say it that way, the rich man has is just to lay his eyes on the goods. That's, that's a benefit. Like, ah, there it is. Oh, there it went, right? You, get, you can just see it long enough before it goes into the pockets or the mouths of others. That's the benefit. That's the profit the rich get. It will go to somebody else. So the misgivings of the rich is really the more they have, the more they want, the more they have, the more they need, and the more they have, the more they worry about what they have. That's the other truth. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So the laboring man, the guy who's, whether it's a lot or little, I mean, it's just you know, you, you can sleep. You can lay your head on the pillow at night and just, it's, you know, you're not going to have those worries because you don't have a lot to worry about. But the idea here is that you have so much stuff, it just causes you to worry. Jesus tells a parable about this man in Luke chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there, but I'll just read it. If you don't want to turn there, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It's the parable of the rich fool. And in verse 15, he sort of sets it up by war- giving a warning again. He says, take heed. And beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, right? So he's, again, warning about possessions. Take heed. If you're coveting, your life isn't about how much stuff you have. And then he tells this amazing parable. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Saul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? I know you know that very well, but that's the idea. He looked at all his stuff, and he says, Wow, I don't even have places to put all my stuff. I better build bigger barns. I better buy more places to put my, my stuff. Isn't it true when you, when you do get more things, you kind of have to worry about, especially newer things? I remember when we first moved to New York, we didn't have anything. 
right? So we just lived in an apartment. There was nothing to, to worry about until right before you're we about to move back to California, we chose to buy a car and drive across country because we, we knew we would need a car in California. It's more spread out. So we bought a car. But we still had a few months left in Queens, New York, where we were living, and we would park it out in the street, which is not the safest area. So what was I doing a lot of times at night? I was jumping up the window and looking out. Is it okay? Is the car okay? Anyone breaking? Is it still there? Right? You start worrying about your stuff. Like someone's going to rip it off because people did it all the time. You hear an alarm go off. You jump up. Wait, is it our car? Is it our car? You worry about your stuff. And that's the misgivings of the, the rich. The more they have, the more they're going to worry about what they have. Proverbs, or sorry, Psalm, Psalm 127, verse 2 says, It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. The man who doesn't have a lot, doesn't really have a lot to worry about, he can, he can rest his head, he can sleep through the night, but uh, the one who has a lot of stuff to worry about, the abundance of the rich, it won't permit him to sleep. Won't permit him to sleep. So we see that the rich inherently oppress the poor. That's how he starts. And they misplace their trust in their wealth, right? And when they do, their wealth ends up oppressing them. And that's really what this next session, section is about, the oppression of the rich. Right? Those are just misgivings. But now we actually see that it can oppress the rich. Don't even realize it. A couple subpoints under that as well. What they have causes harm. What they have causes harm. Verse 13. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Now, obviously, the statement is taken into consideration what we've read before here in verses 10 to 12. Uh, but the idea is the pursuit of wealth here can oppress others, but also uh, damage self. It hurts self. Remember, we, we look at this word uh, kept, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. That same word was used at the very beginning of chapter 5 when we saw walk prudently. Um, it is that word shamer, to keep, to guard. We talked about observing your leg, where you walk, walk prudently, right? That's the idea here. But it also can mean treasure up, treasure up, which I think in this context is the, is the idea. Riches treasured up for their owner really can cause hurt, it's to their harm. Proverbs 1.19 is a proverb of Solomon. And he said this, So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owner. Solomon is, is emphasizing that. That if that is your, your focus, treasuring, greedy. I'm not just saying having things, but treasuring. Greedy for more. The abundance. It, it, it is to your harm. It takes away one's life. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 6 warns about that as well. Paul writes to this young pastor about the dangers of, of riches and, and wealth. It's really the love of money that um, really comes into play here. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, this is what he says. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can take nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, so it's the desire, okay? It's there, like, I gotta be rich, I gotta be rich. That's gonna solve everything. It's that mentality. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Do you see that? To his own hurt. They pierce themselves through right? They've actually hurt themselves because of their own greediness 
for gain. That's the idea that Solomon has uh, here. Riches that are kept or stored up or treasured up for their owner, but to their own harm. They're doing it to themselves. Now, all of that sounds like a miserable existence, doesn't it? Like, oh, well, there's something worse. Solomon's going to get into something worse. What about, what about the man who lives that way, who hoards goods for himself, who's treasuring up all those uh, things, busy, busy uh, keeping his goods but not keeping his neighbor, right? We should be doing that. Who's oppressed the poor, harmed others, harmed himself, and then he loses everything he accumulated. That's the idea, right? You go through all that, you hurt all these people, you hurt yourself, and then you lose it all, which you could, you could, right? If that was where you put all your hope and trust and then your house burned down or, or that storage unit burned down, what, what, what are you going to do? Is it a good thing to put our hope in? Which is this point. Not only what they have does it cause harm, but what they have may disappear. Verse 14. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begats a son, there's nothing in his hand. What if your riches were suddenly just lost through a bad business venture? You know, uh, a lousy investment, a catastrophic, uh, what do you call it, act of God? Do they still even use that phrase? Can they, can they still have that phrase in legal paperwork, right? If there's no God, but right, that's, well, that's an act of God. We won't cover that, you know. That's the idea here. They can lose everything. And then consider if a child comes into a picture, is there any profit left over to hand to that child? So that's what he's looking at. This is, this is an evil thing, right? Someone spends their whole life pursuing those things, and then there's just some misfortune. They lose it all. They don't even have anything to give to their children. It's terrible. Is it wise to trust in something so transitory? The answer is no, it's not. Proverbs 23, 5, another proverb of Solomon. He says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. (laughs) They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. I love that. Setting your eyes upon riches is setting your eyes upon that which is not. Setting your eyes on nothing. It doesn't exist. Because you set your eyes upon that, and that's your hope, but they can easily fly away, and it's gone. It's not a wise thing. So what they have can disappear. It may disappear. And also what they have, they must leave behind. That's another truth, right? These are all very things. We can could, we could see all these things. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb naked, shall he return to go as he came? And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? A man who lives for amassing wealth ultimately lives for something which he just can't keep, right? It's going to go away. He can't carry even one thing in his hand. Psalm 49, 16 and 17 says, Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Ultimately, it's the Lord who gives. And it's the Lord who takes away, isn't it? Um, and we have to have that mindset. Job had that mindset, didn't he? I mean, he had a lot of possessions. He was a rich man, but he was also a godly man, a God-fearing man. And it was the Lord who allowed those things to be taken from him. But what was his response? Job one twenty one: naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can tell where his heart was. It's for the Lord. I didn't have any of that to begin with. It's all the Lord's. He chose to give it to me. And so he enjoyed those things while he had them, but then he chose to take them away. That's okay. I'll still bless the name of the Lord. That's the attitude that we're to have. But the, the rich, those that are consumed with those, uh, amassing those things, they've got to leave them behind. And here's the result of that. They really never enjoy life. 
Verse 17. All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. There's eats again, right? So all his days he's consuming these things, but he does it in, in darkness. For those who pursue gain and oppress others in the process, whether they possess wealth at one time, uh, or they, uh, they possess it one time and then they lost it, there's no contentment. That's the idea. You, you're consuming it in darkness. It's a metaphor for, for misery, uh, for adversity. In fact, look at the words that are used to describe this person, sorrow, sickness, and anger. Sorrow is ka'as, and it means anger or vexation. And I think it has that idea of the cares and frustrations that ate him up, caring for his things and the frustrations of trying to get more right? They're consumed with this sorrow, this vexation. Or, or take sickness. Sickness is holy. It's not holy. It's holy. And it's a disease or an affliction. I think that more has the physical. Can it take a physical impact on you? A mental impact, right? A physical strain, a mental strain because of the pursuit for these things. And the third word there is anger. And it's the word ketsef. And it means wrath. Wrath. That's not just angry. That's those thwarted ambitions, right? Those pursuits you, you just couldn't get, just downright wrathful. And it can change, really, how you look at life. I had a grandfather who was wealthy, but you wouldn't know it. He didn't live that way. He didn't live extravagantly. I mean, he wore the same shirt every day, I'm sure. They lived in a mobile home trailer outside of Laughlin, Nevada, because they could cross the river and gamble. Just enjoyed gambling his money, but he had a ton of it. And he was a miser. He wouldn't do anything with it. You know what he did with it? He just stored it up. And his wife was the same way. She would go and gamble and win things from bingo. And she would store her money in shoeboxes. And when she passed, my father had to go and clear out closets and found shoeboxes full of dollar bills. Over $10,000 stuck in a closet, sitting there doing nothing. And my grandfather was a cranky old man. He was not a happy man. It was hard to be around, um, a difficult man. And I just see him when I read about this person. It had eaten up all the cares, and that's all he had. It was just the stuff, that's it. I just have those things. Didn't care for people. He didn't care for things that really mattered in the end, and he died that way. That's a tragic thing. Many people do. And so this is a tragic uh, ending. But I love that Solomon lets up and gives us the alternative. What, what does the voice of wisdom say when we approach riches? How should we approach riches? Look at verse 18. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. This is not the first time he said this, is it? He said in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's the conclusion of just enjoy the life God gives you. We are to enjoy it. You're not sinning if you do, <laughs> all right? You can enjoy it. You can say, thank you, God, for giving us this. What a blessing this is to us. And so enjoy it. And so the, the rest of this section we'll go through rather quickly. It's really concluding thoughts for the, the rich. And I want to begin really by prefacing, I think this is the thought that, that goes in his mind. Can, can you know God? Can you know joy and enjoy um, life and be rich? Because so far it sounds like, well, you just can't be rich because you'll just be miserable, right? The answer is, well, yeah. You can be rich, you can be wealthy, and you can know God and have a great relationship with him. And you can enjoy life and be filled with joy. And that's what this section is going to look at. I've known many people like that. 
There was a, a gentleman in our home church that came every Sunday. I probably mentioned it before. He always had a $100 bill tucked in his, his pants there, right, just in his pocket so that he could give that to somebody whenever he heard of a need, the minute he'd heard of a need. And many times we got up front and said, hey, we've got this widow, and this has happened to our car, we got this, right? And I would see him. I would see him get up, and he'd make a beeline. I knew what he was doing. He was reaching for that $100 bill. I knew it was there, and I knew she would be going home with a crisp $100 bill. I've been the recipient of that $100 bill. For another reason, just say, oh, I just want you to go take your wife out for food. I'm like, that's a lot of food. I'm like, come on. We're having steak tonight, honey. But can you enjoy that? Yes. And guess what? He enjoyed giving because God had made him uh, with the ability to eat of it, which is where we're going to go into now. And that's the, the whole idea, okay? If you can eat of its goodness, it's a gift. If you can enjoy it, it's a gift. That's the idea here. Verse 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to enjoy it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. So it's not a curse, okay? If if God has blessed you with riches, you haven't been cursed. That's not what he's saying here. You've been blessed. Here's a great quote I found. The emphasis lies on the enjoyment or the joy as itself the reward that we may expect from life and all our effort expended in living it. There's no surplus, no profit beyond that. Indeed, the reward is itself a gift from God, an inheritance in which we share rather than a prize that we earn. It is in receiving life as a gift from God and and not striving to manipulate it and exploit it in order to arrive at some kind of gain that mortal beings can find contentment. That's how we approach it. We go, wow, that's a gift from God, and I will enjoy that. And I will use it in a way that will glorify him. So if, if you've been given that power to eat of its goodness, it's a, it's a gift. If you can't, it's a curse. That's when it's a curse. If you can't enjoy it, that's when it's a curse. That's like my, my, my grandfather there. Sorry, I needed to read verse 20 still. But For he will not dwell unduly all the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his, his heart. Again, that's the idea of just um, coming with that ability to eat of it, to enjoy it. But if you can't do that, it's a curse. Look what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Yes, God? No. Oh. I thought he wanted to add something there, <laughs> which we will defer to God. Verse 1, chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet, here's the key, God does not give him power to eat of it. But a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. So God does grant wealth and possessions to to someone without granting them the ability to enjoy it. That's what he's saying here. And that's not a life at all. It's a, a life that's cursed. God cursed the world when Adam and Eve sinned, didn't he? It's full of sickness. It's full of disease. But that is even more prevalent in the life of a man who can't Uh, be content with what God has given him. He can't be content with those things, like I mentioned with my my, my grandfather there. And as you read these first verses, what does it mean? What is this idea that God has granted him the power to eat of it? Uh, How is it that God would not grant that to somebody, that they won't enjoy their wealth? That just seems like, well, that's just mean of God. Well, we always have to look at these things this way. On man's end, on man's responsibility end, it depends on whether we're willing to accept the style of life God has granted to us. That, that's where it starts. Do, am I willing to just accept what 
what God has given me, my lot in life. And then it's my attitude towards those things. It's my attitude toward wealth and toward God uh, giving, giving me the, so it's, it's the nature of my wealth. It's from God, right? But if a man isn't recognizing God as the giver of all good things, he's not going to be given the power to eat of it. Does that make sense? It starts there. It starts with me going, that's from you, God. And then you have the power to enjoy it, to eat of it. If you're accepting of God's will, then from God's perspective, he's granted you the power to enjoy it or eat of it. And we're given no indication in verse 2 that this man recognizes the source of his wealth as God. You don't see that, do you? And due to that attitude towards his wealth, he doesn't have the power to enjoy it. His riches don't enable him to personally achieve anything so a foreigner consumes it. Like somebody else will enjoy it. You won't. That's the idea. So Solomon gives us a few illustrations as to what this man's life amounts to, and they're tragic. Look at verse 3. This is that man. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. Wow. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Now, a couple things to think about here in the Bible, uh, long life, abundance of offspring, those kinds of things, those are indicators in the Bible of God's blessing, aren't they? You just go back and read the whole Old Testament, right? People would say, God has blessed me with the fruit of my womb, right? God has blessed me. Rachel and Leah, you just see that over and over again. So those are indicators of God's blessing. But if one goes through life without contentment, with, uh, without soul satisfaction, as it's mentioned there, then, then life is, is miserable, and it ends in a miserable death. And this person is worse that he says worse than a stillborn child. It comes without meaning. It comes in vanity because it doesn't, it doesn't lead to life, right? You have a, a human being born into this world, but not to life. So there's no meaning to that. It departs in darkness and its name is in darkness. The light of, of life is never even set upon that life. That's the wealthy person who doesn't acknowledge God. He's born to a life that really isn't a life. Verse 5, Though it has not seen the sun, still talking about that stillborn child, or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? The point is is clear here. Even though the stillborn child never knew the sun, it never saw anything, uh, it had no descendants, um, it was better off than the wealthy man who didn't know contentment. A stillborn child is is a tragic thing. It's not minimalized here at all. But it's a shocking comparison that emphasizes for us the tragedy of a man who doesn't know contentment, who will live life like that. And both end in death because he's gained really nothing. And that's the man without soul satisfaction. It's a curse. Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 to 48. God says this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Wow. We're to serve him with joy, gladness of heart for all that he gives. We don't enjoy the things that he gives. We're only doing it to our own harm. A yoke will be put upon your neck and it will lead to your destruction. Those are serious, serious words. So here's the idea. If you can eat of the goodness of your possessions, it's a gift. If, if you can't, it's a curse. And if you can't, you'll never know soul satisfaction. Is your soul satisfied? That's the idea. Look at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. 
The soul isn't. That sums it all up. Your labor, your toil, your work throughout life, it only fills your mouth. It's only for your pleasure, which is temporary, but it provides no lasting fulfillment at all. At all. It's not satisfied. So he asks two questions. He's going to answer one question with the other. Look at verse verse 8. For what more has the wise man than the fool? So we're back to the wise and the fool here. The idea is, does the wise man have an advantage in this life, right? What more does the wise and the fool? Is there an advantage to, to being wise? Solomon's gone there before, hasn't he? Do I have any advantage at all? Well, he answers that question with the next question. Who knows how to walk? I'm sorry. What, what does the poor man have? Who knows how to walk before the living? I think that's his answer because the, 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 the idea is this. What advantage does a poor man have who, who knows how to conduct himself in life, who walks among the living? The poor man is being equated with the wise man. It's not the rich man. It's the poor man who's being equated with the wise. How is the poor man better off than the rich? How is that true? Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Here's why. The poor man will be content with the sight of his eyes. He's going to be content with what he sees. He doesn't have much. He's going to be thankful, grateful for what he has, right? Grateful for that. And so he's better off. He lives life more wisely. But an inward wandering desire of the rich man, it prevents one from ever being content. Just a wandering spirit. No soul satisfaction. He's this wandering of desire, and he equates it with vanity and grasping for the wind. It's a meaningless life. So the poor man is suddenly the the wise man here. He's saying it's actually better. And there's three reasons that we must accept these truths, and this is the final point. We've got to accept these truths. Um, They're in Scripture. Uh, The first is this. um, Man cannot change them. (laughs) We, We can't change them. Verse 10, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Contentment in life is a must because there's, there's, there's things you simply can't change. Huh? The things you just, you can't change. Uh, you can't change that you've been named man. Man has been named. He said, Adam, right? And Adam was made. And he formed us out of the dust of the Adama, the ground. So Adam has been named. And guess what? You can't change that. He says that. You cannot contend with him who is mightier than they. People try to change those things. But you cannot change it. You want, human beings want to uh, make a name for themselves, right? But the fact is they have already, they already possess one. And it was given to them by their creator. You can't change those things. You can't contend with God. The second thing, man can't change them. The second thing is, man, uh, words cannot change them. Words cannot change these truths. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? The word things is devar, and actually means words or speech. That's why that's probably a little confusing. You could say it this way. Since there are many words that increase vanity, that increase the meaningless, how is man the better? I'll tell you, boy, are we trying to change reality today with nothing more than words. We're not using any scientific proof or anything. We're just using words to change things that can't be changed. Change reality. Fancy speeches, eloquent talk, words cannot change what is real. And the idea here is that the more the words, the less the meaning. 
Man can't change them. Words can't change them. And here's the reason, verse 12, because man is ignorant. We, we, just are, we just don't know enough. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? I love those two questions he puts in there. Who knows what's good for man in life? Well, the answer is this, no one. God knows what's good for man in life. That's why he gave us the Ten Commandments. Man looks at that and says, oh, look at these restrictions. God looks at that and says, you know what? I think you'll really enjoy this life a lot more if you just wouldn't rip each other off. If you wouldn't kill each other, this life would be beautiful. If you wouldn't covet what your neighbor has, this life would be absolutely amazing. If, you, if you'd be honest with one another and not lie, boy, what a good life you would have. Those aren't restrictions, guys. God looks and says, oh, I know what would be good for you. And so he gives those things. This is how you should live. This is the way to a good life. Who knows what's good for man in life? We don't. God tells us what is good, and we grasp onto that. None of us is in a position to challenge God on that subject to tell us, well, this is better. (laughs) What you suggested was pretty good, God, but this is better. The second question is this, who can tell a man what will happen after him? Well, the answer to that is obvious again, no one, because we're weak and we're ignorant. We're, we're beings that are just passing like a shadow, right? That's what he says. We, we pass like a shadow. It's irrational to seek anything other than a life of harmony with God who created us. We're created to, to enjoy what God gives us and to be content with that. And those are Solomon's words. And I want to close with Psalm 37. I was reading it this week. It's just verse uh, 4. Well, it's just a wonderful psalm. But just verse 4 says this, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. We delight ourselves in him, and he gives us our desires. And I know I, I read a lengthy Spurgeon quote last week, and you're probably like, oh, not another one. It's like, yeah, another one. <laughs> because I could, write, I could spend a long time trying to write an eloquent description of what was said there. I can't beat Charles Spurgeon. He was the prince of preachers after all. But listen to what he says regarding that. Take delight in, in the, um, the Lord, and he will give you the, your heart's desires, okay? The worldly person says, I thought religion was all self-denial. I never imagined that in loving God we could have our desires. I thought godliness consisted in killing, destroying, and keeping back our desires. The religion of most people consists in abstaining from sins they secretly love. <laughs> Negative godliness is common. It's supposed by most that our religion consists in things we must not do rather than in the pleasures we may enjoy. And they suppose us to be a crabby, miserable bunch who undoubtedly make up for denying ourselves in public by some private indulgence. Now, it is true that religion is self-denial, but it is equally true that it is not self-denial. Christians have two selves. There is the old self, and there they do deny the flesh with its affections and its lusts. But there is a new self, a newborn spirit, the new man in Christ Jesus. Our religion does not consist of any self-denial there. Oh, no. Let it have the full swing of its wishes and desires for all it can wish for, all it can pant after, all it can long to enjoy. When I hear persons say, my religion consists in some things that I must do and in some things that I must not do, I reply, mine consists in things I love to do and in avoiding things I hate and would scorn to do. I feel no chains in my religion, for I am free, and no one is more free. 
He who fears God and is holy God's servant has no chains about him. He may live as he likes, for he likes to live as he ought. He may have his full desires, for his desires are, his, are for holy, heavenly, and divine things. He may take the full range of the utmost capacity of his wishes and desires and have all he needs and all he wishes, for God has given him, here it is, the promises, and God will give him the fulfillment of it. So good. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And guess what? The desires of your heart will be in the right place. Possessions do have a way of possessing us. And as we've seen, they can be an oppression. They're, they're, they're not the answer. If you find yourself in that place just wishing, I just wish I could get to a better state, you know, economically or financially or whatever, uh, it's not necessarily the answer. God might have you where you are for a reason. He might just want you to get to the place where, like, you know, I just need to be content with where God has me. And, and do. Guess what? Guess what? You'll probably get a little bit more sleep, and you'll probably get a little bit more enjoyment out of life. And it will glorify your Father. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth, and it's living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I know these words do touch us all because we are all prone to desiring things, possessions, wanting to fill our homes with all the good things we see in life. And there's nothing wrong, as we saw, with owning things. They just can't own us. So I just pray, Lord, that we... We would be very careful to not allow those things to take us from you. That we would be very careful to not allow ourselves to treasure up things on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal. But we want to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven because where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be. So I pray that we would treasure the right things for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.